Well, please have open uh, Romans uh, chapter 13. Many of you, I'm sure, will be aware that over the last few years, uh, fueled by a dislike for the decisions being made by governments in response to the COVID pandemic, the, the acceptance that these verses are referring to civil governments and authorities has been increasingly challenged by some Christians, or they have at least uh, raised a whole load of questions as to how these verses ought to be considered and interpreted and applied in our living. Uh, for some, perhaps, their thinking is, if we can show that Paul in these verses is not referring to earthly authority, then that on its own is my justification for just dismissing completely whatever a government may say. It's not a recent view, uh, but it has gained increasing traction in certain quarters because of recent events. Now this evening I'm going to invite you to consider the basic principles that are actually being taught here, uh, but I'm not so naive as to think that these verses do not throw up some difficulties. And so next Sunday evening we're going to be considering some of the real problems uh, that we have to face that these verses perhaps throw up for us, and some of the objections that people may have. Well, there may be certain things that you expect me to address or that you hope that I'll address about which I say nothing this evening. Well, if that's the case, hold fire. Uh, this is going to be a two-part message on these verses. And so uh, there just isn't the time to say it all in one go. So this evening, we're going to think of the principle examined. That's what we're going to do this evening. And then next week we'll consider some of the problems that it raises. Uh, be they real, be they uh, something that just seems to be a problem, whatever, we'll look at some of those things next week. So we're going to consider three basic things this evening with these seven verses open in front of us. And this is the first heading. All earthly authorities are ordained by God. That's the first basic principle that's taught here. Read through the Old Testament, you'll soon become familiar with the idea that there is one God in heaven who reigns supreme over all things. He is the Lord God Almighty, the Lord of hosts. And of course, it's not presented just as an idea. The Bible is a record of how this God has actually revealed himself, proved himself, moved in this world, even created it from the first, and is the Lord God, and shows himself to be such again and again. Of course, the Bible, in fact, is God's revealing of himself. All of this culminating in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in this letter to the Romans, where Paul states in chapter 11, as we just read at the start of the service, uh, that God, and particularly in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, he says this, that of him, through him, to him, are all things. How many things? All things. Which things? All things. And in this same letter, Paul insists that all of us 
know of the existence of this God within the conscience of our soul. And what the Bible teaches is that any form of authority that exists here on the earth amongst ourselves has been established and ordained by God. It's an authority delegated by he who is the exclusively supreme authority. There is none alongside him, there's none that compare to him, there are none that are above him. Where we have in our Bibles the phrase governing authorities, in the Greek it's higher powers, those of higher rank. I think it's very clear, reading through to verse 7, that earthly civil authorities are in view here. We'll say a little bit more about that this evening and next week. But let's begin by thinking about God delegating authority in the world. Well, one very clear form of authority that God establishes in the world is the authority of parents over their children in the Old Testament law. So we read, for example, from verse 18 in Deuteronomy chapter 21, if a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey the voice of his father, because he is supposed to, or the voice of his mother, and who, when they've chastened him, will not heed them, then his father and his mother shall take hold of him, bring him out to the elders of the city, to the gate of the city. They shall say to the elders of the city, this son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of his city shall stone him to death with stones. So you shall put away the evil from among you, and all Israel shall hear and fear. Well, it's clear that that instruction isn't given as a response to one single misdemeanor. It's clear that this is a, a, an habitual pattern of behavior that is seen in these children. And we have to say, of course, we no longer live under that civil law which requires stoning to death. But the principle of parental authority still stands. Paul affirms it in Ephesians chapter 6, along with the headship of the husband and father in the home in Ephesians chapter 5. He also, in that letter, goes on to add the authority of a master over a slave. We might extend that to the authority of an employer over an employee. And if you were with us a few weeks ago when we looked at the Shorter Catechism, you might remember that this actually links back to what we saw then, where our spiritual forefathers understood that the fifth commandment about children honouring their parents, that actually contains a principle which, which actually has a wider reach than just that. And when it comes to considering this issue of God delegating authority and appointing authority in the world. It's very important to remember a particular aspect of good interpretation of the Bible, which is something that we call the analogy of Scripture. And that works very simply like this. If something is being taught clearly over here, and it is the truth, it will be taught clearly in other parts of the Bible as well. The more clear it is, the more often it's taught, the more certain you can be of its truth and of its importance. If it's something you're struggling to find anywhere else in the Bible, 
then you need to exercise great caution as to how much emphasis you give it and how much importance you place upon it. If it's something which is rather obscure in one particular text, you can't find it taught or explained more clearly in another part of the Bible. Execute great caution as to how much you're going to put upon that. Alistair Begg, over in the United States, some of you know him, of course, a, a Scot by birth, now ministering over in Cleveland. And if you've ever listened to Alistair Begg preaching, there's a particular phrase that you'll find him using fairly often. He says this about the Bible. The main things are the plain things. And the plain things are the main things. And he's right. So on this issue of the delegation of authority by God to men, is this something that's taught clearly elsewhere in the Bible? Well, the answer to that question is a resounding yes. What you'll also realise as I take you through some examples is that it really does mean all who are in authority, even those who we might find to be rather unsavoury characters. That's an aspect we'll pick up, again, pick up on again next week when we have to face the thorny issue of authorities who do behave in a less than satisfactory way. But as we consider these verses that we'll just look at briefly now, Perhaps this will help you to think through some of these issues uh, ahead of next week. So let's look at some other verses which confirm this principle of God's appointing of earthly authorities. There are verses which speak of God's providence and of his sovereignty over earthly rulers. That verse which says that God holds the heart of a king in his hand and turns it. But here we're thinking specifically about their appointment to that position in the first place and the authority which they wield. Well, let's begin in Isaiah chapter 45. The opening verse says this, Thus says the Lord to his anointed. Who's he going to mention next? To Cyrus, whose right hand I have held to subdue nations before him and loose the armour of kings, to open before him the double doors so that the gates will not be shut. Cyrus was a pagan king. And look at how the Bible describes him. The Lord's anointed, whose right hand is held by God. A pagan king. Jeremiah, chapter 27, at verse 6. Now I have given all these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, God calls him. The Lord uh, and the beasts of the field I have also given him to serve him. Nebuchadnezzar, an unbelieving pagan, God's servant. And in Romans 13.4, although we have the word minister in our Bibles, in the Greek the word is diakonos, servant, same word. And God, speaking of earthly 
unbelieving rulers, kings in the Old Testament, calls them his servant. Let's think of Daniel chapter 2. We'll be coming back to Daniel a few times because it's a very helpful uh, book and a very helpful part of Israel's history when we think about this topic. Verse 21 of Daniel chapter 2. God changes the times and the seasons. The pandemic, God. Vladimir Putin, God. The war in Ukraine, God. He changes the times and the seasons. I don't profess to understand, but I do recognize the truth that's put before me in the Bible. God removes kings and raises up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. Here is a king or a queen going through their coronation ceremony. Well, we've been thinking about that a lot recently, haven't we? Any king or queen, every king and queen, who does the Bible say put them there? God. Then Daniel addresses King Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, a pagan king, the king who destroyed the city of Jerusalem, even the temple, the place of worship, the king who's taken tens of thousands of Israelites captive into Babylon. How will the Bible describe that kind of king? Daniel 2 from verse 37. And this is Daniel speaking, addressing Nebuchadnezzar. You, O king, are a king of kings, for the God of heaven has given you a kingdom. The God of heaven has given you power. The God of heaven has given you strength. The God of heaven has given you this glory. And wherever the children of men dwell, or the beasts of the field and the birds of the heaven, he has given them into your hand. He has made you ruler over them all. You are this head of gold, speaking about that statue that was seen in a vision. Might it be that for some, their problem with this issue of delegated authority is actually a faulty understanding of the one who is supreme over all things and the work that he chooses to do and how he chooses to do it. Perhaps they want a God who they can fully understand, a God who they can fully predict, a God who only does those kinds of things which in their view a loving God should do. But what these verses reveal so clearly is that there is no earthly power which exists or, or operates outside of God's full knowledge and will and control. Even when evil is in the ascendancy, even when tyrants appear to be gaining the upper hand, do not try to account for what God is doing by measuring it with your own wisdom or by what seems right to you. And as I'll be reminding you again next week, do not quickly forget the testimony of Scripture and the testimony of believers all through Christian history. Men like Richard Wormbrand, who I mentioned the other week, 
where what you see again and again is this. It's your spiritual life that matters. It's your spiritual state. It's the closeness of your walk with Christ which matters above everything else as a Christian. Not the circumstances in which you find yourself. Not the government under which you're living. And in fact, it's very often in times of trial and opposition and persecution that Christians and churches enjoy the greatest spiritual blessings and fruitfulness and then go on to glory. And we dare not forget those things. Let's go into the New Testament. Let's think about John chapter 19 and verse 11. Jesus is on trial just before he's about to be crucified. He's in front of the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate. What does Jesus say to Pilate? Listen to his words. You could have no power at all against me unless it had been given you from above. And what do we see Jesus doing? He makes himself subject to Pilate. He puts himself under Pilate's authority as the Roman governor. He puts himself under the decision that Pilate's going to make. Jesus doesn't speak out against him. He doesn't speak a bad word of, against Pilate, as we might perhaps expect him to. And these are not insignificant lessons that the Bible puts before us. God is doing something far greater than the immediate circumstances suggest. And that's so very often the case. God is actually doing something far greater. No, you might not be able to see it right now, but God is doing something far, far greater. So what did we read back in chapter 9 of Romans, starting at verse 16? It's not of him who wills, it's not of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. The scripture says to the Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, that my name may be declared in all the earth. Therefore he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills he hardens. Pharaoh in Egypt was in God's hand. When Paul writes to Titus in chapter 3 at verse 1, remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work. The Apostle Peter in his first letter in chapter 2, therefore submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme, only of course in terms of supreme amongst men, not supreme compared to God, or to governors, or to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. So some very similar things said by Peter there as we read in Romans 13. And Peter clarifies the matter for us in that kings and those in authority are an ordinance of man. What that means is these are things pertaining to men and women, but they have been established by God. And in laying down clearly this principle, uh, 
We're actually all already beginning to understand how we need to think about the problems that these things sometimes raise for us. Peter says that submission to these authorities has to be observed for the Lord's sake. It's what the Lord requires of you. It's what pleases him for you to do it. Because these ordinances are of him. And so secondly, we see that to reject such authority is to reject God. Verse 2, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. And he says, let every soul, let every individual person be subject to the governing authorities. Be in subjection. It's a Greek term which comes from the military and it means to align yourself under. It is to recognise and acknowledge those who are in authority over you and to live accordingly. It's to accept and respect the office and the position that they hold because it's a God-given, a God-ordained office and position that they have. Now, of course, you may find that the person who holds office is not a particularly agreeable person. You may find that you're not in agreement with every decision that they take. But you must behave with honour and respect concerning the office that they hold, and you must continue to live in subjection to them. And we've already noted what Peter says, that you're to do it for the Lord's sake. And Paul, in verse 1 of Romans 13, gives you the reason why you must live in subjection to governing authorities. He uses the word for, because. One of the questions a child will often ask when you tell them to do something is why? 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 Well, God tells you why. That's what the word for represents. Because they have been ordained. They have been put there by God. Just like all those Old Testament kings. To reject them is to reject God's ordained pattern for human life in this world. That's what verse 2 is saying. To reject them is to reject God. And so we discover in the Bible that there are those, such as Daniel and his three friends in Babylon. They find themselves in a foreign land. And for the most part, they live in subjection to the king of Babylon. For the very most part, they live in subjection. They align themselves under all of Babylon's customs and laws. They align themselves under these pagan kings and regimes. These are kings and regimes which at times did very great evil. Yet they work for them. They work well for them. They're some of the best employees they've ever had. The Bible does not condemn them for doing so. In fact, they're held up in the scriptures as men of great faith. Now, those who were in Babylon they did find, of course, that there were, at times, lines being drawn that they realised they could not walk across. 
a law was laid down which they could not follow. And we'll consider those kinds of things in more detail next week as we consider some of the problems that this instruction throws up because problems do exist and problems will occur. But in terms of the basic principle, which is our theme for this week, the lives of those men are so very helpful as we see them living their lives subject to foreign, godless kings and clearly did so according to the will and purposes of God and with a very great impact for good upon all around them. And likewise in the New Testament, I think we sometimes forget that all of the New Testament was lived out under the shadow of imperial Rome. There have been few empires to rival the awful tyrannies that were meted out by Rome. It was an empire of great spiritual idolatry. It was an empire of great sexual immorality and all kinds of other awful things. If there was a government you would rather not live under as a Christian, it was Rome. And Paul is writing to Christians who live there. And Paul is writing to Christians who live in a place where a certain Caesar named Nero is about to unleash unspeakable horrors against Christians. And yet, read through the Gospels. Read through the letters of the Apostles. And this political situation under which those, Christian live, those Christians live hardly gets a mention. It's hardly ever mentioned. Because it's not the main thing. It's not the main point. One of the few times it's raised with Jesus, he simply confirms that it's right for the Jews to continue paying their taxes to Rome. There's another help for next week. Did Jesus not know what their money will fund in the Roman Empire? Did he not know? Yet he still insists that those taxes must be paid. Paul, Paul is a Roman citizen by birth and he travels extensively throughout the Roman Empire on his missionary journeys. And the only time, really, that Rome ever features as an authority under which he's living is in the closing stages of the Acts of the Apostles, where Luke records for us how Paul acknowledges this God-ordained structure of authority and requests that he be treated lawfully under it. And he actually asks to be put under Roman law. Because despite the many disreputable things of which Rome is guilty, Paul submits to that rule of law which is theirs to exercise. And that's what he's talking about in verses 3 to 5 here in Romans 13. Paul is a godly man who lives in subjection to that which God has ordained. And this is why Paul says what he does in verses 5 to 7 in terms of what your basic attitude and conduct must always be. You must be subject, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. 
Because of this, you also pay taxes. They are God's servants attending continually to these things. Therefore, render to all their due taxes to whom taxes are due. The word that's used there refers predominantly to what we would think of as things like income tax and national insurance. Customs, to who customs, and that's more akin to things like uh, VAT, paying your road tax and so forth. Fear, to whom fear. In other words, having a respect for the authority that they do have over you. Honour, to whom honour. You must fulfill what God requires of you who one who li- as one who lives under them, he says. Just as, deep, just as Jesus teaches in the Gospels about the paying of taxes to Rome. And one of the things to remember is this. All of these men and women who actually occupy these positions, they will be answerable to God one day for how they have acquit themselves in that role. They will be responsible before God And God will hold them to account for how they've spent your money, amongst other things. They will stand before the judge of all the earth and give an account for everything they've done, everything they've thought, every decision that they've made, every piece of legislation that's ever gone down. Do you remember what we've just been looking at in chapter 12 about how we are to behave towards our enemies? And remember that when Paul wrote this letter, he didn't write it in chapters and verses. He just wrote a letter. And we might look, ah, chapter 13, verse 1. Therefore, something completely new is being begun by Paul. No, he's just carrying on his letter. And he's just been speaking about how we behave towards our enemies. Well, shouldn't that apply to ungodly governments? Doesn't it actually make perfect, spe- perfect sense, having just spoken as he does about our enemies, to go on and say this about earthly authority, knowing that earthly authorities will often be our enemy? Well, we can think through that in a little bit more depth next week also. But there's no artificial break in the narrative here. Just for a moment, just blank out the chapters and verses. And we see that Paul is just continuing his theme as he writes to Christians, this is how you live in the world. This is how you behave in the world. This is how you are to be with those who are against you. And then thirdly, what Paul points out for us here in terms of the principles that he's calling us to take hold of and apply in our lives is the role and the purpose of such authority. The role and the purpose of it. One of the the objections that some Christians might have is so many governments in the world have been and are evil and corrupt and ungodly, atheistic, they don't really seem to fit the picture, perhaps, that Paul paints for us in verses 3 to 4. Rulers are not a terror to good works. And you might say, well, actually, there are some good works that they are a terror to nowadays. 
there are things that they ought not to be endorsing, and they are endorsing them and encouraging them. Well, this is understandable that we realise uh, uh, this clash. But let's just consider a few things as we look at this final point this evening. The overarching principle for these authorities is to maintain a proper sense of law and order, to encourage proper behaviour and good conduct, verse 3, and to discourage and punish wrong behaviour, verse 4. He is the avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. He does not bear the sword in vain. And that reference uh, surely is to the fact that actually a government has every right to issue the death penalty in certain cases. Just as you find in Old Testament scriptures. Now, many governments in the world today have chosen not to do that. But the Bible says they have the authority to do it if they so wish. It also includes, in my view and the view of many others, it includes the authority that a government has to raise up an army against great evil where the occasion may require it. Not everyone agrees with that, I know. But I believe that's what's being taught here. And this is, the this is the overarching principle that such authority is to bring. And in this, they are God's servant to you. They bring a form of wrath to bear upon wrongdoing. And they sharpen your conscience as to what is right and what is wrong. Now, what we shouldn't find ourselves doing is focusing only on those things which we think a government is doing wrong, or those things that we see a government doing which are wicked. And those things which go against the light of God, of his, God and his word. And there is plenty of that. But that's not a valid reason to write it all off. That's not a valid reason to denounce it all. We take our own nation as an example. There is so much in our own land that's changed over the last few decades, hasn't there? And in terms of laws that have been passed. And we lament many of those things as believers. I know that. But actually, if you take a step back, there is much that actually still fulfills what is written here in Romans 13. If you're a thief or a cheat, if you commit a violent crime, if you take another person's life, if you're an abuser, if you behave in an unruly and unsociable way, if you, if you behave irresponsibly in a way which endangers others, you will find yourself on the wrong side of the law, and rightly so. And the government still does that today. And actually, the majority of what the government does is all about that stuff. That's not what hits the headlines, but that's the routine stuff. Yes, there are some awful anomalies which ought not to be there. Abortion is a very great sin. Redefining marriage and gender are awful things that governments are trying to do. No, the system is not perfect. 
Yes, all kinds of things slip through the net that ought not to slip through. We live in a sinful, corrupt, and very imperfect world. But those basic protections are still understood. And they are still there. And they do continue to be upheld and enforced. Those are the things that still afford you the kind of safety and liberty that you do still enjoy. We understand politicians are, for the most part, they're sinners with unrepentant and unregenerate hearts. So don't be surprised when that's how they behave. But by God's grace, that does not mean that there is nothing they can, there isn't anything they do that can be trusted. It doesn't mean that they never make any good decisions. Britain's never been a paragon of virtue and morality. Uh, things today are often just much more upfront and out in the open. Whereas in years gone by, they were all done behind closed doors, but they were still there nonetheless. And so how we need to pray for those who are in authority. What responsibility they shoulder. What responsibility they have under God. How we need to pray for them. What accountability they will one day have before God. How we need to pray for them that they might repent of their sins and that they might do that which is just and right and good. But the Bible still insists that the office they hold demands our honour and our respect because the office is ordained by God. And maybe think about this ahead of next Sunday evening as well. Bad government is better than no government. Maybe you've never thought about it before. But bad government is better than no government. This is God's wisdom for our good, you see. Imagine waking up tomorrow morning and every form of authority has been removed from the UK. Every form of authority. There's no government. Westminster is closed. There's no police force. There's no judicial system. All the traffic lights have been turned off. All the road signs have been removed. Who are they to tell me what to do? Everyone is completely free to do whatever they want. Everyone is completely free to do whatever seems right in their own eyes with no comeback whatsoever. Nothing. That will be one very scary world to live in. Days of suspense and fear would very likely turn into unending days of terror. And there would be increasingly loud and desperate calls for things to return to how they used to be, because even that would be better than this. Even with all its faults, that would be better than this. In fact, you probably find people banding together in vigilante fashion, trying to re-establish some form of law and order to try and quell the absolute chaos that has ensued as every sinner is free to do whatever they want with no one and nothing to restrain them or punish them in any way at all.
God in his love and wisdom has established for us that which we need. And as those who belong to him, he calls us, as we've read already, to live at peace as much as depends upon us. And that includes as being model citizens, aligning ourselves as much as we possibly can under those who are appointed over us. It does raise questions. It does raise problems. We'll look at those next week. But this is to live a life which honours the Lord and pleases him. This is to live as Christ lived. And if that isn't enough to convince you, I'm not sure I know where else to point you. But this is to live how Christ lived. If you think you know a better way than Christ knew, you're walking on very thin spiritual ice. You are to live as a model citizen in this world, but knowing that this actually is not your home and you belong to another kingdom and you live under another king and that kingdom and that king he is to be your chief concern he is to be the one to whom you keep looking he is the one who you need to keep discovering in the word of God he is the one to whom you need to keep turning. He is the one in whom you need to keep trusting. He is the one in whom you need to keep hoping. It's the things of Christ and his gospel that must captivate your heart and your mind and take up all of your energies because supremely you belong to the one who is supreme over all. And you are to live for him. You are to live to him. You are to live for him. You are to live with your eyes and your heart and your mind ever fixed upon him. To his praise and to his glory. May the Lord help us to do so.